Goodbye. <laughs> That's awesome. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Um, before we get started this morning, I want to let everybody know in two weeks from today, uh, May 14th, we're going to have a church meeting for members immediately following service. So mark that in your calendars. We're just going to discuss a few things. Uh, but again, May 14th, church meeting immediately following service. A few years ago, well, doesn't seem like that long ago, but two years ago, first sermon I preached was out of Matthew. It was regarding Zacchaeus. And with things that have transpired over the last few months and some services I've been a part of, going through Luke, I, I came back to the story of this little man. You'll find in this passage that, even beginning of verse 1, Luke is giving us his account of the last personal encounter um, that takes place before Jesus enters Jerusalem. Uh, this is a very important moment in the folding of Luke's gospel as Jesus was making his way, because you'll note this little section that ends in verse 10, there's a great summary statement there. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. So please, if you'd stand with me, let's read together, beginning at verse 1 of Luke chapter 19. He entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but was not able to because of the crowd, since he was a short man. So running ahead, he climbed a sycamore tree to see Jesus, since he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. All who saw it began to complain, he's gone to stay with the sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said, Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, and Lord, if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Today, salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Please be seated. I want you to keep that verse 10 in the forefront of your thoughts this morning as we go through this scripture. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. It, before we go further, let me, let me give you a little backstory of what's going on in Jericho, a little bit about Jericho at this time. First of all, Jericho was a very desirable place to live. It was described as the city of palms. Roman historians refer to it as a little paradise, and it was you know, impossible to visit the city of Jericho and not be taken back by all the trees amidst the desert. The sycamores, the cypress, the flower trees, the palm trees, you know, balsam plantations, they gave a, a fragrance that went throughout the city. So fragrant that these trees in Jericho, uh, Jericho excuse me, uh, gave the name to the city because Jericho simply means perfumed. Jericho was a very built-up and fortified city. It, uh, there were four forts that comprised both military encampments, but also you know, very lavish architecture and beauty. Uh, if we had walked up in the direction that Jesus and his disciples were coming, we would have noticed these Fantastic royal gardens, these rose gardens that just went on and on and on and on as far as the eye could see. You know, all this beauty, all this grandeur that would have been impossible for us to miss. Jericho, uh, importantly, was on the caravan route from Damascus to Arabia. Uh, people that 
were there were necessary to support the economic and social systems, and different types of people could be found all around. There would be uh, soldiers that were part of, you know, local military garrisons, merchants, because it was just a thriving uh, commercial center being on this caravan route, again, stretching across the east. Uh, you would find religious zealots, there were travelers, there were priests, there were tourists, you know, just all types of people. But Jericho was a place of opportunity and desirability. It was on the last leg of the journey from Galilee to Perea for people who were making their way up to Jerusalem during the festivals. And as we have in the Gospels here, there were several festivals that took place in Jerusalem throughout the year. And we know the present time, as uh, this account of Luke unfolds, everything is moving towards the great festival of Passover. So consequently, the people would be making their way up to Jerusalem, and the last place they would stop would, before pushing on would be Jericho. And as a result of these people passing through, it was customary for the, the, the city inhabitants of Jericho to come out and see the travelers on their journeys. And when I would think about this, when I was younger, uh, my grandparents bought a house in North Carolina they were going to retire in. And it seemed so weird to me, because I, I was like 9 or 10 years old, but every summer my grandmother would, everybody had to get dressed, you'd have to go down the city, there was a wagon train that came through. And I don't know if you're familiar with this, but Western North Carolina, there would be a procession of uh, horses and carriages and buggies, and it would look like something ripped out of the 1800s, but everybody came to just see these people passing through. But now here in Jericho on this particular day, I, I find it hard to believe there would be anyone, very few, that would choose not to go out to the streets and see what was going on. Because on this day, Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter, the miracle worker, the preacher of sermons, the storyteller, he was leading his group towards Jerusalem. So imagine vast and just huge, enormous numbers of people standing along the streets like we would do just watching a parade. You know, people had been talking about him for months now, some even years, and they just came wanting to get a glance of Jesus. Likely in the crowd, there were men with their wives, and they would be bringing their children, holding them up, that maybe Jesus would catch their child's eye, or maybe they thought it possible to themselves that Jesus would stop there as he'd heard, done, and they had heard on other occasions that, you know, he would take the children and bless them and set them on his knee. Or imagine the talk going through the crowd, you know, do you think he'll stop? I wonder if he'll do a miracle. Maybe he'll preach a sermon, or maybe he'll tell one of those stories, one of those parables. Perhaps we'll go to the house to one of the religious leaders, one of those nice homes along the rose gardens. You know, whatever thoughts were passing through their minds, surely none of them would have considered in the least that what we have here in the scriptures of what transpired when we're introduced to this little man in verse 2, Zacchaeus. A man was there. There was a lot of men there. But in particular, there was a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus means literally righteous one. You know, but the supervisor of tax collectors you know, he wasn't living up to his name. His name was perhaps the desire of his parents, you know, going through uh, tradition or temple ceremonies, what the law required. You know, they got their little baby in his arms, and maybe they said they were going to call him Zachai or Zacchaeus, or we'll call him Zach for short. You know, the righteous one, the pure one. God let our baby grow to become his name. But certainly the Jewish religious community in Jericho would not have considered him righteous in the least. For not only did he collect taxes from his own people, but he worked for unclean Gentiles. You know, publicans or tax collectors were notorious for collecting more taxes than they required of their people. You know, the more money they collected, the more income they enjoyed for themselves and the wealthier they got. 
people would have said to themselves possibly, isn't it weird that his name's Mr. Righteous? Here he comes, coming down the door, knocking on our door, Mr. Righteous, taking our taxes, putting a portion in his pocket, going on to my neighbor's house. There he goes again, Mr. Righteous, Mr. Pure. He's nothing more than a thief, nothing more than a cheat. Now, we know that Zacchaeus had a house and probably a nice one because we're told, you know, he had a job, a hated one. And we know that he had quite a bit of money because the adjective used is rich or wealthy. So Zacchaeus was a rich man in a worldly sense. We know that he wasn't the tallest of individuals. He was a short man. And I don't know what we would call that today, you know, trying to be politically correct. You know, I think I've heard vertically challenged. But me being under six foot myself, I'd rather just be called short. But more than this, something had arisen in his heart. He wanted to see Jesus at any cost. In the East, it was unusual for a man, especially someone in some type of role or, or government position, to, to just run in, in, in you know, childlike fashion. But Zacchaeus ran down the street like a little boy, you know, like someone just standing there following a parade. And he even climbed a tree. You know, this is the milk that we teach our kids in Sunday school. The little song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. And those are cute little songs, but we're going to get down into the meat of the scripture this morning. Was it just curiosity that drove Zacchaeus? Perhaps he was simply curious, and maybe he just had a connection. Was it Matthew, you know, Levi, the former tax collector, one of his co-workers? Had Matthew told Jesus about Zacchaeus? Had he told Zacchaeus about Jesus? Was he praying for Zacchaeus? Has Zacchaeus become weary of his wealth and started yearning for something more, something more meaningful? Maybe he'd been lying in his bed at night and saying to himself, you know, I can't keep going on like this. It's beginning to get to me. I didn't mean to get into this deep in the first place. You know, I wasn't really going to cheat people when I started this job, but someone said you can make an extra 10 if you do it like this, and, you know, that 10 didn't seem so hard, so I went for 20, and I can double that. I can go to 20, but look at me now. All the stuff I have around me, I have it by dishonest means. You know, I have all this guilt in my heart. And that's often how sin affects our lives, isn't it? We give a little bit here. It looks good. It gets a little easier. We take it a little step further and another step further. And we give in a little more. And before we know it, we're covered in it. We're buried in it. Perhaps there was something like that going on with Zacchaeus. Maybe that's what may be going on with some here this morning. Nobody knows, even the closest to you, don't know, but inside yourself, you're saying, I can't go on like this. I can't live like this. You may have even come to church this morning for this very reason. Maybe there's a struggle going on within your soul. Perhaps that's what was true of this man here. Was it compassion that brought him? Was it the notion that Jesus was a compassionate person? Perhaps Zacchaeus felt like nobody had ever had time for him. Maybe they never invited him to any services or any special events or any parties, you know, you know, dinners. But this Jesus, he was apparently a compassionate person. He wasn't like the others. Possibly it was that he thought that Jesus was a friend to people like him and he longed for companionship. Maybe the way someone here this morning feels and longs for that companionship. Maybe you feel you're alone in the crowd. It's not that you're really alone or you're without friends or family. It's not that you're without people 
or things around you. Maybe your whole life is about people, but you find yourself walking into a room feeling completely alone, maybe even a little bit alienated. Perhaps that was something here with Zacchaeus. Now, we don't know, but we do know this. Somewhere deep within Zacchaeus, there was an irresistible urge to meet Jesus. And I want to speak to you this morning to the extent of that, that if you have this conviction within you, it is a wonderful thing and respond to it, latch on to it, because by nature, men and women do not seek God. There are countless people living in our community, all around us, maybe even here this morning. They're not by and large seeking God. On your way here to church this morning, when you got to an intersection or at a traffic light, did someone roll down their car window and say, hey, I've heard about this God. Can you tell me how to meet him? Maybe when you went through the grocery store or Starbucks or wherever you went to get your coffee this morning, you know, did anybody ask you, do you know Jesus personally? I've heard the name Jesus before. Could you tell me how to meet him? It may happen, and I'll tell you when it does happen, that's nothing less than the work of the Spirit. And the request is on the person on the receiving end. It's an irresistible urge within their souls to know Christ. And that is something only God does. We can't produce that. We can't accomplish that. We pray for that. We preach for that. But only God does that. The work of the Holy Spirit does that. We see a calling in this passage. God calling Zacchaeus to himself. Now think about Zacchaeus, the short little man. Hindrance they, there may be. I'm too small, but I can press on. The crowd is deep, but they won't let me through. And why would they let me through? They would say, Zacchaeus, get out of here. The last person in the world that he wants to meet is someone like you. Does this sound familiar? What does Zacchaeus do? He rushes ahead of the crowd, and he climbs a sycamore tree. It's a good choice because apparently sycamore trees have their branches very close to the ground. And I mean, I thought about it. How does this little guy get up the tree in the first place. When I was a kid, I'd have to put my bicycle up against an oak and balance on the handlebars before I could even grab the first branch. But there he is perched like a little bird or a monkey, something just looking down the crowd, waiting for him to come by, waiting for Jesus. Jesus is coming and Zacchaeus was waiting. And here at verse five, you see where we've been holding the lens towards Zacchaeus. Now Jesus reaches that spot. All of the eyes in the crowd are essentially at level for Jesus. He's walking down. The crowd is standing along the streets. And he sees up in a sycamore tree a man. A man who was a renegade in the eyes of the Jews, but a precious lost sinner in his eyes. He's the least likely to be noticed. He seemingly hindered the most in coming, yet he's the most anxious about Jesus passing through. And remarkably, Jesus stops under his tree. And I can't help but to think when I thought about this, how many of us would say, can I pick a tree or what? You know, I didn't get where I'm at by just climbing any tree. I went ahead, I scouted it out. I found the optimal spot bragging on themselves. We all know people like that. You know, Matthew 20, 16 tells us, so the last shall be first and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. Jesus comes for the least, and he comes for the left out. Maybe someone in the crowd thought, hey, I'm sure when he comes, he's definitely going to want to stop here and talk to me. Look at all the good I'm doing. Look at how great I am. Depart from me. I never knew you. The proud he humbles, the humble he exalts. 
Sinful pride will keep us from God's kingdom. It was not Zacchaeus' fault that he was of little stature and could not see over the crowd. He did what he could to overcome. He was an overcomer, but putting aside his dignity, his pride, his humility, he climbed a tree. We can relate to that, can't we? I hope we can. In a spiritual sense, all of us of a little stature, as stated in Romans, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No one measures up to God's high standards. We are all too little to enter heaven on our own. The tragedy is many who think they are big are truly lost. They measure themselves by man's standards, by what they've done, their money, their positions, their authority, their popularity, things that have of no value inside of God. They think they have everything, when in reality, they have nothing. They think there are all these people around, tons and tons of people, all around here in the streets of Jericho. But Jesus was looking for this man, this foolish little man sitting up in a tree. But think about it. Who was looking for who here? Zacchaeus came to examine Jesus, came to get a mere glimpse of him. The eyes of Jesus looking up in that tree. But I can't help to feel that it was actually the eyes of God looking down upon the earth. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. Now imagine what Zacchaeus is probably thinking in this moment, what he must have felt. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls, and he hears me when I cry. That's the discovery this little man makes. And Jesus says, I want you to come down immediately because I must stay at your house today. It doesn't say, it's okay with you if it's cool with you. Can I come over? Jesus presents a divine necessity here. Why must he stay at his house? If we go to verse 10, the answer is right there. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus is lost, but the shepherd came to find the sheep. The divine necessity is matched by the hospitality which Zacchaeus shows in verse 6. So he quickly came down and he welcomed him joyfully. Joyfully. There's a transaction here that's taking place. If Zacchaeus had been asked to articulate it, he would have been... What would he have been able to say? It's only a short time later when all the pieces of the puzzle fit together. We know what happened because we have God's definitive and final word. We know that Jesus, he was looking for, speaking to, wanting to get a glimpse of, would soon be crucified on a cross for our sins. When I was studying and preparing this last week, I came across this old hymn It's from the late 1800s called, I Know Whom I Have Believed. And there's one particular verse in this I'd like to share. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. It's that divine transaction. It's the work of the Spirit. That's something God does. This is what the Bible refers to as conviction. This is not joining a church This is not being part of a small group. It's not going through traditional ceremonial procedures. What we're talking about here is divine transaction. This is where I was. This is where he met me. This is where I am. 
This is something that God alone can achieve. Zacchaeus submitted the way he did, but only Christ could bring about that change. And then verse 7, all who saw it began to complain. He has gone to stay with a sinful man. All these people just angry and disappointed. You know, of all the places in Jericho he could have gone, he could have stayed. He chose to stay in Zacchaeus' house. Can you believe it? Zacchaeus had worldly wealth, but actually he was only a bankrupt sinner who needed to receive God's gift of eternal life and the most expensive gift in the world. This is the only instance in the four Gospels I could find that Jesus inviting himself into someone's house. We don't know what was said in those moments between Scripture, what was said when Jesus entered his home. I think it'd be awesome if another little section of verses were there describing the conversation that took place. You know, the missing parts telling us what he talked about or what they did. You know, there's kind of just this silence. But it's not important for us to know their conversation, for it had been, we would have had it in God's word. But what we do have here is a testimony as a result of this encounter. There was a transformation, there was a change that which, it took place in Zacchaeus' life, in his heart. Zacchaeus was not saved because he promised to do good works. He was not saved because his parents gave him this awesome, meaningful name. He was saved because he responded by faith and repentance to Jesus' gracious word to him. Having trusted the Savior, he gave evidence of this by promising to make restitution for those he had wronged. You know, saving faith is more than just 50-cent words or showing up to a church on a Sunday morning. Saving faith creates a union with Christ, and that results in a changed life. Zacchaeus' life had been changed. That selfish robber, that thief, that tax collector, that despised man, that short little guy, he became a selfless giver. That significance in of what he's saying, I've been doing things, Lord, that are completely self-oriented. I've been selfish. I've been storing up for myself these treasures on earth. I'm the product of ill-gotten gain. But as a result of my encounter with you, I want the world to understand that you have changed me. Jesus, I have a testimony. It's not enough to simply say he turned over a new leaf or anything to that effect. There had been a divine transaction that had taken place. And if we're in any doubt about it, the explanation as to why is given to us in verse 9. Today, salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. And you want to know what happened? He said, today, today, salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus understood what his past had been. He was a sinful man. And oddly enough, Zacchaeus became a guest in his own home that day. Jesus Christ was now Lord of his life. Now, eventually, the door would shut. Jesus would have been gone, and Zacchaeus would have been, you know, standing alone, maybe in his kitchen or room, thinking to himself, you know, I often, when I pray, and I, you can ask my wife, I, I pace. You know, there's tracks around my backyard, but I can't help but think Zacchaeus like this, just talking out loud, talking to God. If I've understood this correctly, he came to Jericho looking for me. You see, that's the beauty of salvation. It's not by our works or our righteousness. It's by his works, by his righteousness that we're redeemed. And we're given new life through him. And I ask, do you know the companionship of Christ? And more importantly, is he Lord of your life? 
Have you placed your faith and trust in him? Have you repented of your sins? Zacchaeus discovered in this moment that there is forgiveness. All of this cheating, all of this lying, all this dark stuff we don't even want to admit to ourselves, let alone those closest to us. But Jesus, by his death on the cross, deals with that which nobody else can. Jesus Christ picked up the tab that nobody else could pay. When you look upon the cross and you think of Jesus hanging there, when you realize that he died there to bear our sin, the wrath of God, when we realize that we are sinners, we are depraved, and he's gone to that extent to provide the atonement for our sins, to give us new life, reconciliation to the Father by his sacrificial death, would we not then come and ask him to make it real in our lives what he's made possible by his sacrifice? Would there not be fruit? And denying ourselves and trusting in Jesus and repentance, there is forgiveness. In trusting in Jesus, there is significance. There is new life. Zacchaeus had some significance prior to this to some degree in a worldly sense. He was a rich man, but people didn't really care for him. They knew where he worked. They knew what house he lived in. They could recognize him walking down the street. But he'd get lost in the crowd, just like anyone else, another cog in the wheel. And some may be here today, and you feel yourselves to be exactly that. There's significance when we turn the pages of God's word, when our eyes are opened by the Spirit and realize that Jesus comes to seek and to save the lost. He comes to you. He calls you by name. Through the preaching of the word, through kindness of friends, circumstances of loss of loved ones, family, fractured relationships, whatever it might be, suddenly there's a vulnerability to us. There is purpose to know God and to enjoy God, to be his representative in a world that doesn't really care about him, to glorify his name in a world that would rather glorify itself than the one who gave it life. The experience of salvation will produce joy in a believer's heart. It will produce fruit. Zacchaeus became the guest in his own house that day. Jesus was now his master. He was ready to obey the Lord and do whatever it was necessary to establish a genuine testimony before the people. And they criticized Jesus for visiting a tax collector's house, but he paid no attention to their words. People say, well, you know, I'm going to follow Christ, but I'm just going to keep holding on to this old garbage and do all this other stuff I did before. No, you're not. You have to choose. You cannot hold on to Christ and hold on to everything else. You have to die of yourself and follow him. To follow Christ is to forsake your sins. It will cost you your pride. It may cost you friendships. It will cost your selfishness, your independence, you being the Lord of your life. It will involve you saying, Lord, I want you to take it all. I want you to take my marriage, take my home, take my relationships, take it all. I recognize that you are master and Lord over it all, and it will cost me not only saying no to sin, but saying no to self and also standing on your word. God, you come first. Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. You see, Zacchaeus went up privately, but he came down publicly. Jesus said, I must come to your house. Do you know Jesus? And more importantly, does Jesus know you? Have you sought forgiveness 
Are you looking for that significance? Do you find the cost too costly to follow him? I can't help but to share this again that we've heard many times and it just resonates in my heart. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world than to lose his own soul? Jesus said to him, said to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house. So when Jesus comes, he's going to make a change in that house. Today, he says, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we close this morning. But in closing, you know, we talk about praying to see unbelieving people become committed followers to Jesus Christ. But let there be no mistake of what we're talking about. It's not simply saying to people, here's the message of the good news. Jesus has done everything. You need to recognize it. Have a great day. What we're saying is Jesus, by his death on the cross, has made an atonement for the sins of those who repent and believe. And by nature, by nature we don't repent and we don't believe no matter how often we may come to worship or our commitment to religious things or traditions. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, hands are raised and amens are shouted. But has your life changed? Is there an obstacle in your life or something you're holding on to, holding you back? Are you climbing that tree? This was the last occasion that I could find a recorded scripture of a personal encounter Jesus had with someone before he passed through Jericho onto Jerusalem and to soon be crucified on the cross. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. That's not to be pessimistic. That's not to be alarming. Sincerely honest. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. Today, I must stay in your house. Today, salvation has come to this house. Today, we are not restored by our works. We are not restored by what we have done, what others have done for our place, but we are restored through Christ alone. And over the last few weeks, something has really stuck out in my head. And it came in... Kind of wish Jean, uh, Christine was here this morning, but it, it really started with Miss Jean's celebration of life service and something that her grandson Eric spoke about. He talked about how Jean was a hero of his at such a young age of his life that you know his grandma had all the cool stuff, the baseball cards, the video games, and she was this lady, just small little lady that just told people how it was. He shared some other things, but he said, you know, she was here at such an old age in her life because she made a public profession of faith. She wanted everyone to know she loved and lived for Jesus Christ and she was baptized in a swimming pool by some help from others. And that got me thinking about my heroes, you know, people in my life that I've seen taking a stand for Christ, you know, denying themselves to the world and putting it all aside and following him. You know, I think about Biblical heroes like David who, you know, slayed Goliath or Paul who once killed Christians and persecuted Christians only become a great champion for Christ. When I think about pastors like, or, or scholars like Spurgeon or Paul Washer or, uh, you know, Vody Bauckham or the Billy Grahams, the Raven Hills of the world, any others that preach the very core of who they are, nothing less than God's truth as presented in his word. Those are my heroes. 
But we forget about the Zacchaeuses, the ones who laid it all down, that turned from their sins, followed Jesus no matter the cost. Men like that, men, real men, men who put God first, those are my heroes. People who set aside their pride and say, my problems are great, but my God is greater. But heroes will let us down. They are flawed men, sinners saved by the same grace. But our Savior, Jesus Christ, our great Redeemer, our living hope, my comfort, my strength, he will never let me down. He is my significance. He's my purpose. He challenges me. And I pray that through him you find your significance, your purpose, your challenges. I pray that you climb that tree. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for an opportunity to come together and study your word. Lord, we don't always understand why things happen the way they do or circumstances that come and go. But we know we are in the hands of the Almighty. And in any trials, any temptations, things we go, you walk through them with us. Father, we, we, we pray, we talk, we preach. Salvation, salvation, salvation. Lord, if the Spirit's not convicting, they're not coming. But Lord, we pray for the lost. We pray for their souls. We pray that their eyes would be open to your word, to your truth. And Father, if there's anyone here today, I pray your Spirit convicts their heart. Lord, forgive us where we fail you. And it's not when we're saved that we become cleansed of sin, but that sin hurts. We recognize that sin. We turn from that sin. Father, we thank you for your Son our atonement, our reconciliation to you. And sin we pray, amen. Please stand and worship with us.